Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church here for our second service on this wonderful Father's Day. I'm reminded that uh, today is Father's Day. Or some people think that I had forgotten that it was Father's Day. We'll see if I remembered. Anyhow, welcome to our second service. It's uh, wonderful to see you here. And yes, um, we have um, a social... Uh, gathering afterwards, and so I certainly hope that uh, I have a chance to talk and see all of the, all of you there. Um, I think one of the more enjoyable things we do, other than studying the Word of God, is gathering together as believers and having a chance to get to know each uh, each other a little better. Um, I can tell you that uh, every time I have a chance to sit and talk to another member of this family, and we are, we are a member of the body of Christ. This is our spiritual family and we should be close and we should have uh, a concern and love for one another, compassion for one another. Um, That causes us to be concerned, praying for one another, supporting one another. It doesn't mean minding someone else's business. It's certain the Bible does not teach that, but it does teach having a concern uh, as you would for another family member, a loved family member. So these are wonderful opportunities for us to get together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he shall meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall never wither. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. That's the first psalm, Psalm 1. And it's just a remarkable psalm. Uh, This is also our opportunity. Uh, It's a portion of our spiritual life. Uh, The Lord has given us the opportunity to give, to support the ministries that support the body of Christ. And those ministries sometimes are missions, overseas missions, some of them are local organizations, and so we are given that privilege. And as I often like to say, I I like to reflect on the Philippians. The book of Philippians is a remarkable book. Uh, I had the pleasure of teaching it as actually the first book I think I taught here in the National Capital Bible Church. And the book is really based upon thanksgiving why was the apostle paul who wrote the book why was he thankful well he was thankful for them for the philippian believers the church possibly more than one but the church that was there in philippi because they were growing spiritual believers and they had such a strong spiritual Uh, desire, passion for what Paul was doing that they gave beyond their capability. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. These Macedonians are our example. They are giving beyond their capability. But in Philippians 4, Paul says, I'm thankful for your gift. Not because I'm in need, because... God's providing everything I need. I have 
I've been in need, and I've been prospered. But I'm thankful for your gift, not because I'm in need, although I do need your gift, but because of the blessings that will be accrued to you. And then he says, God is going to resupply you according to his, uh, his great wealth in eternity. It's a remarkable passage. Philippians 4.19. And so, this is not a pitch for you to now say, oh, well, I need to give beyond my means. No, I'm not saying that. But it is wonderful that the Apostle Paul reveals this information to us, saying that I have blessed you so that you may receive the blessing in giving. And then guess what? You're not going to be without because I'm going to resupply what you've given. It's, it's a remarkable system, ministry that our Lord has given us. But of course we know that each one of us gives as we purpose in our heart, not grudgingly, but or with compulsion, for the Lord loves a gracious giver. And that's where we find ourselves today. So this is our opportunity for that as well. Dear Heavenly Father, let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the fact that you have blessed us, that you have provided for us in remarkable ways. We are blessed as a nation and as individuals, differently as individuals, but we are blessed. And we're thankful first and foremost for your great gift to us, the greatest gift you've given us, which is your son, your son to be our savior. And for him to be our savior, we simply need to believe in his gracious work on the cross, his finished work on the cross, his work on the cross that provided our salvation by atoning for our sins. So that now it's simply a matter of the human responsibility of believing. Each one of us has that responsibility. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come here as the body of Christ to worship together and to honor you. We pray that we would honor you in our giving, in our song service, and in our studying. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, that we'd all be that excited about getting a chance to go to our classes. Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6. I have uh, several jobs this morning, several topics, subjects that I would like to address. And our first topic comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 6. So, Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches, possibly a church, but more than likely more than one church, but the believers in Corinth. This is possibly the second letter. I mean, uh, it's 2 Corinthians, but we believe that there were other letters 
we think that there were many as four letters, but two, God the Holy Spirit has codified for us into the canon of Scripture. And when we come to the book of Corinthians, there are many who inappropriately believe that much of this is written to unbelievers. And every now and then, you'll find a pastor that, that will say, but because you know there's quite a few unbelievers in congregations. And my question is always, how can that be? Do we not know how to be saved? Phase one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, are we here trying to bring them to uh, many unbelievers to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I guess if we are maybe just starting the church or we have um, a group that we know that's in the congregation that have never heard the gospel uh, in the past, but really the teaching of the Word of God, beginning in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, is for the edification of believers. That does not mean we can't determine from the Word of God how someone should be saved, someone should be justified by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul, in his epistles, he is writing to believers. Believers. Trying to encourage them, even exhort them in their spiritual life. So, when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is talking about coming again, visiting Corinth. And he's not writing to unbelievers saying, when I come, I'm going to really be upset because you're not believers or you haven't believed. He's talking to them about their spiritual life and how they have failed in that spiritual life. And Corinth was just famous for this. Uh, they had a lot of trouble, and thank goodness they did, because many churches have trouble. And First and Second Corinthians are tremendous books for us to study with regard to uh, problems within the local church. So beginning in verse 13, 1 of chapter 13 in Second Corinthians, we, say, we read... This will be the third time I, Paul, am coming to you all, Corinthians. And what we don't know here, and it's hard to read the tenor of Paul's voice, but Paul in his letters, were, was he was constantly correcting them. And really the word admonishing them is appropriate. So he's saying, all right, I'm going to come for a third time. Guess what? I don't want to come with a stick. I'm getting a little tired of doing that. And that's his purpose here. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Why does he insert this? Because he is coming, first of all, to straighten out problems. And there are certain individuals <clears throat> who are probably going to be standing tall, as we would like to say. 
But he's not going to be picking on them because he's heard maybe a rumor. But there is evidence. There's evidence that they are a problem. And that this needs to be corrected within the body of Christ. I have told you before and I foretell as I was present this, and I foretell as I was present the second time and now being absent. I write, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. And the word here is translated literally spare. But what he's saying, I will not be lenient. I'm coming again, I'm not going to be lenient. It's not going to be pretty. So straighten up before I get there. That's what he's saying. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, of course, there were those who didn't want him to come and straighten them out. So they would say, well, you know, who's Paul? Yeah, okay, well, so he says he's the apostle. But, you know, who's he? Who's Paul? So you seek proof of Christ speaking in me who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. You're believers, and he's in you as well. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but shall live with him by the power of God towards you. So he's saying, the spiritual, there is power in the spiritual life. And there needs to be spiritual power in you as well. But he's pulling them along saying, yes, I speak with great force and authority. Why? Because Christ is in me. Supposed to be in you too. And we know is in you. So then he goes on to verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether or if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. What does all this mean? Well, the question we have to ask, is Paul asking the question here, you need to test yourself to see if you're justified. You need to run a diagnostic test to see if you have the imputation of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to somehow determine if you have eternal life. You need to search within yourselves and see if you have Christ in you. Is that what he's saying? No. He knows that, and that's been stated in the first part of this chapter. We know Christ's in you. But what you need to do is you need to test your spiritual, we might say spiritual reservoir of doctrine, what you believe. What do you believe? Are you really applying what you believe? So, <clears throat> what am I doing? What am I saying? Why are we reading this? This was one of the questions that was asked at the conference. The conference we had this past week down in Houston, Texas. Chafer Theological Seminary Conference. It was an interesting conference from the standpoint that we originally had hoped, the organizers of the conference, they, I was really not one of the organizers, 
But the organizers of the conference had hoped to have a speaker, a special speaker come that was going to be able to address messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. Well, since he is a professor at uh, a seminary, he was unable to make it during the normal March uh, period that we usually have the conference. And so, decided to make a change and push the conference into June so that this individual could come. And then he ruptured a disc in his back and was unable to come. So, slight shift to another emphasis for the conference with uh, another professor, but this one was from Chafer Theological Seminary. But while he was on a short-term mission trip in Thailand, he was killed. If I would have been the third person asked, (laughs) I might have uh, questioned whether this was God's will for my life. (laughs) So, what, what the decision was made that we'll take the conference and we'll sort of split this one up to uh, address different questions that very often arrive, arise in uh, biblical churches or even within the church, whether they are uh, Bible churches or not. And so this first question, well, I'm reading another one. Let's see, it's the second one. Yes, examining ourselves to see if we are saved. Uh, Andy Woods uh, addressed this uh, problem. As a matter of fact, he had addressed the problem in a book that he that had, that had come out that has various questions within, uh, you know, challenging questions, difficult questions within uh, Christianity. And his question, the actual topic, I've shortened some of these uh, so that you can see them. Uh, doesn't Second Corinthians thirteen five say we need to examine ourselves to see if we are saved? And the answer is no, it does not. We are not to examine ourselves to see if we are saved. Why? Because we know precisely how we are justified. We understand precisely whether we have phase one salvation. And that is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal saviors. And if you, personal savior, and if you have done that, then you are in Christ. And the, uh, Andy Woods, one of the reasons I'm saying this is because uh, you can go online uh, to, um, now I think I've, this might be, I don't think it's on Dean Bible Ministries. Now I'll have to check to see where this is. Okay, it's on Dean Bible Ministries. Where you can, you can uh, find the presentations that were made at the, uh, at the conference. And some of them I strongly recommend, I certainly encourage you to watch them and listen uh, and study along with the presenter. Um, Many people think that, well, this is really for uh, seminary students or for pastors, but it's really not. Uh, It is for them, but it's also for the, um, the average Christian because it will stretch you. Now, I don't remember that I've, taught this passage, but I've taught many of the passages that were covered in this, um, in the, in this conference. The first one that we see here is what about the unpardonable sin? Well, we've studied that. 
We've studied that in Matthew 12. And we understand that it's not even called the unpardonable sin. It's called the unpardonable blasphemy of God the Holy Spirit. And it's a reference to the nation of Israel. And that's found in Matthew 12. The Lord Jesus Christ is talking with the Pharisees. And the Lord has been performing miracle after miracle after miracle, demonstrating that he is the Messiah. He's demonstrating that he is who he says he is. And the Old Testament uh, foretold of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, and how he would demonstrate that he was the Messiah. And the Lord has been doing that. He's been performing those miracles. And the Pharisees keep saying, well, if you could just give us a sign. Just give us a sign. How about a sign? And the Lord is standing there in front of them, having just performed these miracles. And what did the Pharisees say? Well, we think you're performing those miracles by means of Satan, Beelzebub. Well, no, he wasn't. He was performing many and most of them by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the unpardonable sin is the nation, the leadership of Israel, that was blaspheming God the Holy Spirit. Very similar to the blaspheming of Ananias and Sapphira of God the Holy Spirit in the early church, which is, an, which is isolated. God was placing great emphasis on the power of God the Holy Spirit in the early church. And you'd say, well, I hope if I lie today I won't get struck down. Well, guess what? You've probably told a lie or two in your life and you haven't been struck down. So that is not a sin that you're going to be able to commit today, nor can you commit the unpardonable sin. As a matter of fact, to say something is un- there's a sin that's unpardonable would be to say that the Lord Jesus Christ missed one on the cross. This is a denial that the Lord Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Christ. He came so that Israel could recognize who he was and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. How's the kingdom of God at hand? Because I'm the king. The king is here. The king's here. The kingdom's just around the corner. But you need to accept me as the king first. Didn't accept him as the king. What happened to the kingdom? It was pushed down the road and we're in the church age now period of time that was unforeseen. And so someone might say, well, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. No, you could have only committed the unpardonable sin as if you were alive at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and you denied him as the Messiah. Examining ourselves to see if we are safe. No, we're examining ourselves to see where what is happening in our spiritual lives. And the disqualification here is parallel to the disqualification that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9. Turn very quickly to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, here he is. He's now talking to them about their devotion in the spiritual life. He says, Do you not know that those who run... In a race, all run. They're all running. So, while we're not going to be able to make every bit of this analogy fit, Paul's saying, we're all believers here. We all should be running. We should all be in pursuit 
of a prize. And by the way, the prize that was won at the uh, Olympic Games um, and other games, the Isthmus Games, one person would receive it. But there's no limitation to the prizes that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church age can receive. It's simply up to each individual. So, uh, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Indeed, truly, they run. On the one hand, one receives the prize. On the other hand, one receives that prize. But you all run in such a way that y'all may obtain, and the word it is not there. You may obtain a prize, is what he's saying. There's not one. There are prizes that are available or rewards for you. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Exercises self-control is a better way to understand that. In all things, in other words, they are uh, they're exercising self-control with regard to how they are pursuing their Christian life. And this works very nicely with what we were studying before. They are resisting the temptations. You know, somebody who's in training, in theory, is not eating things that would be uh, harmful to their training. They're not doing things that would be harmful to their training. Let's say a wrestler needs to lose weight or needs to maintain a weight. Or uh, a weightlifter needs to eat certain things to promote his ability. And so self-control says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be staying up all night running around all day. You know, I need my sleep, whatever it might be. That's the self-control that we see here. <clears throat> now, they do it to, to obtain a perishable crown. But we, on the other hand, for an imperishable, an eternal, heavenly crown. Therefore, I run in this way, not with uncertainty, but with a goal, we could say. Thus, in this way, I fight, not as one who beats the air, shadow boxing, um, you know, having, um, just having no purpose here. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, proclaimed to others, I myself should become disqualified. Disqualified in what way? Loss of salvation? No. Disqualified for that prize. And so this is Paul again revisiting that same type of subject. You, know, there, you, have, you have been uh, baptized into the body of Christ. You are in union with Christ. You have all these marvelous assets. The potential for you to receive a reward is great. Don't disqualify yourself from that. Uh, Andy Woods does a fine job with examining to see if we are saved. Uh, does biblical prophecy suggest a Muslim antichrist? Uh, Tommy Ice has done a lot of work in Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel. And uh, periodically we'll hear someone say, well, you know, I think that I found a special passage. There's a key here. And that this, that the antichrist is going to be an Assyrian or he's going to be a Muslim, or he's going to be somebody else. No, we know from Daniel 9 that the prince who is to come comes from the people who were in charge and destroyed Israel at the time of in 70 A.D. <clears throat> and then, of course, there's always those people that say, 
yes, but what if? You know, what if an Armenian sneaks in there? Or what if a Cossack comes down? No. No, I, I can't tell you that his background is going to be German or Italian or Spanish, but it's from that Western block of people. And there are some people that um, have in the past been pretty sound regarding uh, biblical prophecy. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Bill and I talked about one of them, uh, Walid Shubat, who actually spoke at pre-trib. He's kind of taken this, as a matter of fact, I, he's, he now accepts this premise that it's going to be uh, a Muslim Antichrist. And it's not true. Uh, he's, he's doing some other things that are a little bit strange at this point. But anyhow, does biblical prophecy suggest a Muslim Antichrist? I really recommend this because Tommy, you know, doesn't happen to anybody else but Tommy. He prepares for an hour with about five hours worth of material. And so he, he starts ex- giving you an in-depth explanation of Islam. It's tremendous. And then he says, uh-oh, I've got 45 more slides here when he has 10 minutes left. And then he has to try to figure out how he's going to do this. But essentially, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, tells us who this Antichrist is. And it's not going to be a Muslim. We, we don't have any idea uh, what the world situation is going to be at the time of the rapture. You know, there are people who believe that they've identified the Antichrist at various times. You know, Napoleon was the Antichrist. No, he wasn't. Mussolini was the Antichrist. No, he was not. Interesting, very few people ever say Hitler was. Why? Because there was Mussolini. And Hitler wasn't. But they'll always be said, well... We don't know who the the Antichrist is going to be. One of the reasons we don't know is because Satan doesn't know. And this is Satan's man. And Satan doesn't know when the rapture is going to occur. And so he's not going to be spinning up this Antichrist until he knows when he needs to be on the scene. So uh, Islam could be on the ascendancy now. Maybe in another decade it's going the other direction. And we have something else. We don't know the historical setting at the time of the Antichrist's appearance. But the Bible does not say it's a Muslim. Uh, Believe and confess. Is it a two-step way of salvation? And this is Romans uh, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And we've studied Romans 10, 9, and 10. Do we need to confess and believe? And what we understand from Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that the Apostle Paul is talking about the deliverance of the Jews in the tribulation. And I'll have to teach this again, but uh, Dr. Dean does a, a remarkable job. I recommend you, uh, you watch this um, because people like to use Romans 10, 9, and 10 as a salvation verse, and it's not a salvation verse. It is not a salvation verse. It, the context is end times. And it's talking about the deliverance. The deliverance. All we have to do is throw in the word saved and we go over here to justification. That's where we, we peg ourselves there. But we just need, need to learn to use the word deliverance every now and then because it's 
what we're talking about there is physical deliverance. And so it's an excellent, he does a fine job. Middle East meltdown, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now there are some people, uh, two parts here, Andy Woods again. Uh, some people, you know, when it comes to end times prophecy, they just go the other direction and say, oh boy, I'm not going to, I can't understand what's going on in Jeremiah, I can't understand what's going on in Ezekiel, I can't understand what Isaiah is saying. But it, and it takes a little bit of work. And people like Andy Woods and Tommy Ice have done a lot of work in this area. And he talks about Ezekiel 38 and 39. And there's a campaign that is discussed in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it is a a point of discussion within uh, conservative Bible scholarship as to when this happens. Does it happen prior to the tribulation? Does it happen at the beginning of the tribulation? Does it happen at the end of the tribulation? Does it happen at the beginning of the millennium? Does it happen somewhere uh, in the midst of the tribulation? And there are good scholars, solid scholars, on uh, all sides here. And it is a discussion. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the ways that uh, Andy was introduced is that Tommy Ice has written um, articles about this. And Tommy says, of all the things about which I'm dogmatic, I'm least dogmatic about this, where it happens, because it's very difficult to tell. And Andy Woods uh, uh, presents a position that says it's really split. It's a, the campaign is there, but it's a split timing. One is happening at the be, in the first part of the tribulation, and then it's concluded at the end of the tribulation. As he says, it's not original with him, but he does a fine job of explaining uh, explaining it. And uh, Andy Woods, Tommy Ice, um, these are speakers that are just great. To li- I mean, you, you're entertained while you're listening to them. Uh, so I, I recommend both of those, part one and part two. Uh, Jim Myers, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Good question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? And again, this is something we've discussed. And the way I like to pinpoint it is we can go back to Genesis. Genesis 3, Genesis 3.15, we call Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel, the, the first proclamation, because the Lord is talking to Eve when he says, your seed is going to crush the head of Satan. Well, we may not know everything that Eve understood about that, that Adam and Eve now understood. But we do know that they expected a deliverer at that point. Third chapter of Genesis. And we know that the Lord demonstrated for them a sacrifice. Otherwise, how does Abel know how to present a sacrifice? We believe that the Lord, when he provided clothes for Adam and Eve, illustrated to them a sacrifice. Animals are now going to be giving their lives because of your sin. And so the Lord teaches them about sacrifices. And so from there we expect a deliverer. And as we go through the Old Testament, we learn more about this deliverer who becomes the Messiah. And so... It's not faith in faith, or it's not, and, and again, uh, as we study this, we become 
you know, more we understand, we have a better understanding of uh, of what the Word of God is teaching. But I think in Genesis, and this is what Jim Myers is also saying, that in Genesis three, we have an understanding that there will be a deliverer, and that that deliverer will need to pay the price, need to atone for sins with his life. That was understood. Do you believe that? Yes, I believe that. And we think that Eve, when she names, when we're told that she names that first child, she believes she's gotten a man, the Lord. This this is the deliverer, Cain. This is the one that the Lord promised. This is the Lord. Well, of course it wasn't. Uh, but throughout the Old Testament, that's what's expected. And so we, you know, there is evidence here that salvation in the Old Testament was by faith in this deliverer that would come. Didn't know it was Jesus, but we knew it was going to be a deliverer. Later on, we knew it was a Messiah, the anointed one, King of Israel. We, all this is added to it until we finally get to Christ. And Paul says, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. So, uh, Jim Myers teaches that, and I think it's very enjoyable. We also had an update uh, on the ministries for Camp Arete. Uh, disciples, disciple makers uh, multiplied. Uh, and I am going to spend some time one of these Sundays talking about this, uh, DM2. Uh, we're ready for that. DM2 is a ministry that is sending teachers, teachers to foreign countries. And it's a very dynamic uh, ministry, and it's growing. And many of, our, many of the churches that, uh, that are in what we sometimes call our camp uh, are, are participating in this. They're just slowly getting into it. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to send individuals to other locations to disciple, which simply means to teach, to teach. We're, we are commanded to go and to give the gospel, but after giving them the gospel, we're to teach them the word of God so that they can grow spiritually. Also had an update from Jim Myers on the Ukraine, and uh, John spoke briefly about Brazil. So it was, uh, it, I very much enjoyed the conference. Um, and I recommend going on the website and um, and. Uh, watching and listening to some of these. All right. Now, I know I'm accused of being out of touch by some, but happy Father's Day. Open your Bibles now. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 2. 1 Thessalonians 2. I had a chance on Mother's Day to talk about mothers. And now, on Father's Day, even though time may be somewhat limited here, I'd like to talk about fathers. Now, it goes without saying that fathers are important. The importance of the biblical role of father. Are mothers important? Absolutely. Without mothers the human race would slowly grind to a halt. But the Lord has designated, God has designated that a family be made up of two people, at least at the beginning, father and mother. 
And it was the Father that was created first. And by creating Him first, the man first, the Lord is indicating, teaching, designating the authority that resides there. And it's not something that we should dismiss lightly by saying, well, you know, had to create somebody first, I guess. No! The Apostle Paul makes it clear that there was a reason for this. Yes, both created on the same day. Yes, both created in the likeness, image and likeness of God. But, the importance of the first person created, which was the male, must be understood. And I know that some people would say, you know, you're kind of preaching to the choir. I know I am. And we can look around in society and say, uh, can we tell that fathers are important? Yes, we can. Article after article after article after article talk about families that do not have fathers. What's the role of the father? Well, for some, it's, well, he's, he's the breadwinner. I've got to go to work in the morning. So I get up in the morning and go to work and come home at night. Exhausted, go to bed, get up in the morning, go to work. But there's so much more to the role of the father. The role of the father is the head of the family, and everything that happens within the family is the responsibility of the father. Delegation, yes. Responsibility, no. We don't delegate responsibility. So, the importance of the biblical role of father. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. You are witnesses. This is the Apostle Paul. He went from, this is on, he's on his second missionary journey. He has Silas and Timothy with him. He goes to Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia, after leaving um, Philippi. And now he's writing to them a letter. And he says to them, You are witnesses and God also. You know, this is an interesting parallelism. You are witnesses, Thessalonians. And not only are you witnesses, but God is a witness as well. So they're on the slate to present evidence along with God. Sort of interesting how he parallels that. How devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. You who believe. Thessalonians. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. As you know, how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Where does the Apostle Paul get this? The Apostle Paul is their spiritual father. And we know that he considered himself the spiritual father of Timothy. And so, how did Timothy respond to him? How were they to see the Apostle Paul? They were to see him as a father, like a father. Well, did that mean that the Apostle Paul was there once in a while? You know, I came to Thessalonica once, and we got chased out. 
and I haven't been back since. No, that's not the understanding here. The words that we have, first of all, in verse uh, verse 10, you are witnesses, and these are legal witnesses. They are witnesses that we would find in a court of law. And God also. And now he describes three characteristics of, of himself, Timothy and Silas, that he's going to say, he's going to relate to fathers, really. Because he says, we're doing this, and we're doing it like fathers, and then he adds three more. And I think that's, I think we can join all three of these together. How devoutly, the word here, we could use the word holy, in a holy manner, in a set-apart manner. A father has a responsibility that is set apart. Special responsibilities set apart to him. And this is how Paul is using this word. How we devoutly, in a holy manner, and justly, the word justly here, dikaios, righteously, justly, properly, upright. And it was applied to citizens in the Greco-Roman world. So there were requirements for these citizens. And so there are certain things that are properly understood that the Apostle Paul did. We could say fulfilling responsibilities correctly and blamelessly, without shame, without fault, how we behaved ourselves among you who believe. This is how we acted. We. We were your examples. And I think we can use these examples for the Apostle Paul as he's now going to be referring to fathers. So as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had visited the Thessalonians' Thessalonians during the second missionary journey and they established a mission a mission there a ministry churches were there Paul was acutely aware that he was a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ and as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ he was the Lord's representative of how a believer and an apostle should act this is how we should act Paul says and you saw this in us and in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, Be imitators of me. You know, that's a lot of responsibility to tell anybody. Now, sometimes we do. We may say, okay, you know, follow what I'm doing. I'm showing you. But we generally mean it maybe in this one area. Not in my entire life, because we realize that we are not perfect. But Paul says, be imitators of me. And very often he uses himself as an example. And that's what he's doing here. He's a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ and how a believer, an apostle, should act. Paul was an example to the new believers in Thessalonica of what a Christian should be. That's what he was. And now he's going to use himself and relate this to fathers, I believe. Paul's goal was to be the best model possible. Setting an example that was spiritual, it was holy, it was set apart, it was upright and without fault, he would say in his spiritual life. Paul doesn't see himself as being perfect. But that was what he was striving to do, to be without blame. And then he says in verse 11, as you know how, and the emphasis in this lesson, in this verse, 
is on like a father with his children. And some English translations do front load that because that's where it belongs. As you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted. The word here for exhort is parakaleo. And I'm not going to take the time to put it on the board. I don't want to do it. Parakaleo. And it, in its very basic meaning, it means to call someone alongside, to bring someone alongside of you. Uh, to call, to summon someone, to invite them. And it comes to mean, it can mean, to request, not often used that way, but to appeal, to entreat, to implore. It can also mean to encourage or comfort, to exhort, admonish. I think the best way to use it here is probably to how I exhorted you and I think most of the translations use it that way I exhorted you I told you I trained we could even use the word I uh, trained you I told you how to do this and comforted the word for comfort here paramu theomai means to console or to encourage or to cheer up. And I think this is the word for encourage here. So we'll use the first word. And these two words are very close together. But the first one is probably. Parakaleo means. You know. I came alongside. And I exhorted you. I demonstrated to you. I told you how to do this. And I encouraged you to do it. A strong encouragement. And charged every one of you. And the word here for charged is the word that means I, uh, it, it comes from the word witness, very closely related to the word witness in verse 10. But it has the sense of meaning to summon, to call as a witness, we could say, uh, to insist that someone be a witness, to urge them to be, to implore, maybe even subpoena someone as a witness. And so it comes to mean to require. That's the sense. So charging is not bad here. Someone is charged to be a witness. They're subpoenaed to be a witness. I've charged you. So what is Paul saying? He's saying these are the characteristics of a father. The characteristics of a father here. And you'll notice that he doesn't talk about many of the things that we often consider are the first and prominent role of the father to be the breadwinner well that doesn't mean it's not but the father's role is so much more extensive and that's why it is an extraordinarily difficult role you're the leader you're the example to every member of the household I, I get a chance to talk to couples um, prior to, to marriage in uh, premarital counseling. And I spend a lot of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with the creation 
and the creation of the man and the woman. And the Lord tells the man in Genesis 2.24, you are to leave your family and be committed to your wife and the two of you will become one flesh. That's the responsibility of the man. He is responsible to form a household, be committed to her, that woman, and to then become one flesh, to become what Adam was. He was one flesh, and the Lord took a portion of his flesh, created the woman, and they are to come together again as one. And I like to use the example, then if you're one, how does that happen? How does that work? Does it mean, well, we're two individuals, sort of have an affinity for each other, and we kind of have an idea of what we'd like to do in life. And off we go. No. It's two people in the same car, going in the same direction, with the same goal in mind. We're not two cars, two people. We're going in the direction together today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day. You can pull off, I can pull off. No! That's not marriage. That's not the biblical design. And the man was told to drive the car. Now, if you're not driving on the way home, I'm not criticizing you. But the man was told to be in charge. And he's responsible. We can go to passages that say, men do not be a discouragement to the children. Why? Because men can be a discouragement to children. Sometimes they can be too hard, and sometimes they can be a discouragement by not being there. I do quite a bit of reading in the area of the role of the man and the woman. And it's sad, and many of you have read this, but it's sad how many times we'll read that a woman, I think I've even said this in class before, I know I'm over time, bear with me for a minute here, that a woman will say, you know, I don't, I don't think my father ever said he loved me. I don't think my father liked me. I didn't have a good relationship with my father. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is the father very often is not around. He's not there. Now, again, does it? am I not saying that there are requirements for fathers to be very busy? Yes, they are. But they are the father. And the father has not only a critical role, but an irreplaceable role within the family. And women, thank God, they are bonded to their children from the moment of conception. And they do their best. But a woman can't replace a father in God's divine design. Can't be done. And today, we see 
the destruction of the family. And it's not because women aren't trying. It's because many men have failed in their responsibilities. And that's why the Word of God defines for us this role and how important it is and how critical it is as fathers. And you, those of you, I look out here, fathers, and I trust you're doing what the Lord wants you to do. And you are a blessing to this nation. Fathers who are spending time with their sons, fathers who are spending time with their daughters, so that their daughters know their father loves them, that their father's proud of them, that he has spent time with them, and they have a great deal of respect for him. And when they're married, as they walk down the aisle and the father gives away his daughter, that's significant. It's not, well, I'm glad you could make it, Dad. No. Leaving the father that has been her protector and her guide and the example to the, all of the family. She's being passed from that man to the other. And somebody said, well, that's a sexist statement. No, it's a biblical statement. I'm not a misogynist. I love women. But I love the role that God has given to men and women more. And so here's the Apostle Paul saying, like a father. And what's a father's job? Exhortation. Encouragement. Direction. Requirement. Teaching in a holy, a devout way, in an upright way, in a way that demonstrates love, not only for the family, but responsibility to the Lord. Um, there's no, no greater calling than to be a father. There's no greater responsibility. There is no greater responsibility, unless it's to your Lord uh, in your spiritual life. Families need fathers who are living their lives in biblical roles. They're the ones that set the standards in the home. And they're the ones that when it comes down to success or failure of the family, it's not the woman's responsibility. It's the man's. God will require that of us as men. Leaders. And so... I think the Apostle Paul knows what he's saying here when he's talking to these Thessalonians. By the way, there's a lot that could be developed here, and I'd love to do it sometime. And maybe I will. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Father's Day, a day when we can stop and say, what does it mean to be a father? It's not just, let's buy him another tie, but what does it mean to be a father? And maybe for us to examine ourselves as fathers and say, Am I succeeding in this role? And that's a very difficult thing to ask because we live in a fallen world and it's not easy. But this is to what we are called. And if anybody could do it, then anybody could do it. But it takes a special individual. But we're called to that as believing fathers to lead our families to be involved 
as God the Father was, in God, was involved with His Son on earth. The Father, you are our example. You are our example. Were you involved with the Son when He was on earth? Yes, you were. And as a matter of fact, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You announced it to the world. And so, Father, help us. I'm thankful for committed fathers in this congregation. I'm thankful for the leadership of these men in this congregation. We have wonderful men teaching in our Sunday school, teaching in our Good News Clubs. And so I know that they are responding to this biblical role. But help us, Father, to continue to attempt to do better, to do all that we can to represent the relationship that we see within the Godhead, which is designed to be that way also within the marriage. Your leadership example to us as fathers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.